It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I once reminded him that when Dr. Adam Smith was expatiating on the beauty of Glasgow, he'd cut him short by saying, Pray, sir, have you ever seen Brentford? And I took the liberty to add, My dear sir, surely that was shocking. Why then, sir, he replied, you have never seen Brentford. James Boswell, Life of Johnson. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Warnerman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> so we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees... A story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, almost like cultural anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, October the 19th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can, as ever, download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, we're, we're up against uh, the elements, we're up against people drilling, we're, we've got motorbikes roaring by us today, and, but all for a good cause. We are at the Crossbones Memorial Gates in Red Cross Way, they date back to the first Halloween of Crossbones in 1998. With me here, John Constable, who is a playwright, poet, purveyor of unusual walks and author of the Southwark Mysteries, amongst many, many other things. He's uh, uh, adapted Mervyn Peake's Gormenghass for stage, and, and much more besides will be talking about that I'm sure. Also with us Ingrid Beasley, she is the supervisor, co-editor and ex-chair of the Friends Committee of Dulwich on View which is a job title to behold is it not very much focused on community, also on street art and and particularly focused on the Dulwich area, the Dulwich Picture Gallery being uh, your focal institution. Hello you both. Hello. Hi. Hello. We should explain why we are at the Crossbones Graveyard Festival John. Well for, for at least 200 years there's been a graveyard here 
a pauper's graveyard, really, for outcasts. And then there's a local tradition that links it with the single women's churchyard mentioned by John Stowe in 1598. And this graveyard was for prostitutes, for um, or Winchester geese, as they were known, because these sex workers were actually licensed by the church in this area of Southwark, within the Liberty of the Clink, near London Bridge. They were licensed by the Bishop of Winchester and became known as the Winchester geese, and yet in death were denied Christian burial. They were, according to legend, buried in an unconsecrated graveyard, which later became our pauper's graveyard, which had been completely forgotten until the Jubilee Line extension dug it up in the 1990s. And around that same time, I was doing some experimental writing and effectively had a vision or a visitation of this place without knowing what it was. And I began writing about it. And when I discovered the, sort of, the history that I'd somehow tapped into, I became effectively the uh, caretaker of Crossbones. And with many other people, we've been campaigning and trying to persuade the site owners, Transport for London, to uh, return it as a public garden of remembrance for all outcasts uh, living and dead and we're working hard although we may have to call in the mayor again uh, to bring in the thumb screws to persuade um, Transport for London to get moving with this very important task of, of good stewardship of some land that they're lucky enough to be holding. Yes, it certainly seems as though the transport infrastructure projects are in full flow all around us here. <laughs> Tell me about the, uh, the the newer additions to the uh, gates of the graveyard, though, because certainly the last time I was here, which I think was about two years ago with Nigel of Bermondsey, who introduced me first to the place, I, I seem to see that there are newer pictures. We've got one here remembering Jason Angrinus Brimstone Fisher, for example. Pirate radio is good for your mind, says a notice there with a picture of him on it. There also seems to be, well, that looks a little bit like one of those uh, white bicycle memorials here as uh, a bicycle wheel with a photograph of a fellow attached there. I can't see his That's uh, name Barry Mason, the late Barry Mason. This bicycle wheel memorial to Barry and also the memorial here to Jason. Jason's the son of one of our regular friends of Crossbones. Barry was a friend of Crossbones and there are others. So we've been doing this uh, holding vigils on the 23rd of every month at 7 o'clock. We've been doing that for um, seven, eight years, nine years I think. Uh, we're on to the hundredth the next one on the 23rd of october will be the 101st so over those years we've lost some of our own friends who've died and so there are memorials for them as well here this is very much intended as a memorial initially of course for the people buried here up to 15,000 burials here but then also for our own friends that we've lost also some people for example there's a memorial there to a, a porn star who died and other sex workers the women of ipswich and bradford are, are remembered here uh, and also we don't just honour the, the dead outcast we very much honour the living so in a sense when we have the vigils on the 23rd of every month we're honouring all the people who come with their own stories. Now traditionally of course the south of the river, uh, historically I should say the south of the river was where you went for your uh, less than uh, socially acceptable entertainments bear baiting and uh, whoring and theatre amongst them and I know Ingrid that you've been on uh, where is this question going? Uh, I know Ingrid that you've been on one of John's walk to us, and it was a Halloween theme one. I gather you were handed a, a mirror by a sex worker. <laughs> that was really bizarre, I have to say. Um, it was a few years ago, and I think we all ended up in a pub, and there was a bit of performance going on, and we were sitting on the floor, and we were handed a little round mirror, and on the mirror was engraved, "You are beautiful." And that's sort of fine, but then it, w it was explained to us what exactly we were supposed to do with this mirror. It's really for the women. They were supposed to look at their fannies with it. 
and of course then yeah fannies are beautiful and <laughs> so it made us all laugh but it made the poor 16 year old boy that i was with very embarrassed he didn't know where to look <laughs> <laughs> now of course this sense of of community and coming together around something a focal point like for example the crossbones graveyard i should think has resonance for you ingrid in, in the sort of work that you get up to uh, about which we should say a word or two i think well, i'm very community based in dulwich i mean dulwich is um known in many circles as suburbia Um, But it does have a a, a very interesting art gallery. And when I say art gallery, I don't mean a commercial art gallery. I mean like a mini national gallery. And it's called Dulwich Picture Gallery. And I've done a a lot of work for them. And I'm still involved with them. And I've just done so much over the years with them. I've been in their education department. Um, I've run the Friends organisation, so I money raise. And at the moment, I'm doing something really quite bizarre, actually, which is trying to connect the classical art in their permanent collection because, in fact, their permanent collection is all Baroque. It's Western European Baroque art, which isn't everybody's cup of tea. And so you need to encourage people to come and have a look at it very often. Rubens, Rembrandt, um, Van Dyck. Yeah, big names, big names in Western art. Poussin. Um, But, as I say, very classical, and not everyone enjoys that sort of art. And I've been trying to connect it to street art because I think that the... um, Well, there's a huge artistic movement international artistic movement happening at the moment and it's all about street art really and i'm trying to connect the two <laughs> hmm. uh, well, okay so we, we've got sort of counter no, subcultures i suppose we've got to call it haven't we uh, cultures that, that exist and are well known but uh, maybe aren't formally recognized long live it? the subculture yes and, and talking of street art i mean the shrine here which just to give people a sense there's this these old industrial iron gates have been effectively create, turned into a people's shrine and literally hundreds, perhaps thousands of people have added their own offerings, their own things they've made, ribbons they've tied, flowers. There are so many different kind of tokens and totems and mementos on this gate. It's renewed every month on the 23rd, as I say. So our next one is 23rd of October and everyone's welcome to come at 7 o'clock and please bring something of your own, some senseless gift of beauty to, to give to this gate. Well, now let me get a, a sense I'm looking through the gates here and what I can see beyond these uh, beautiful festooned gates this shrine is an area of concrete with frankly weeds and bushes poking through Lovely. to the left I can see some gates which lead onto a car park above us towers to look to the right towers though. the shard yes of <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, John. <laughs> let's uh, let's look to the right. <laughs> to, to the right, we've got what look like angels. We've got a sort of a Mary figure holding geese, obviously a reference to what John was talking about just a moment ago, and some overhanging bushes. And beyond that, foliage, and it's very difficult to see what's what's going on There's back a there. Whole hidden secret garden there. This is the garden that really we started work on about five years ago when we had access to the site. At oh, the so moment, you so you have been able to get in there. We have in the past. In fact, the previous lessees of the site encouraged us to come on when this was a site covered in rubbish, uh, really badly treated by the uh, site owners, it has to be said. And, in fact, there were break-ins, vandalism, drug use on the site. So the the lessee actually encouraged us to come on, clear the site, and take some sort of responsibility as a community for treating this site in the way it should be. And since then, we've created a garden there, which is still flowering there, even though there's no public access. But we are pushing the site owners transport for london to move to work with us to encourage that this particular site the graveyard
graveyard itself is returned to the community. And it is a beautiful garden on there. There's wildflowers, there's a topiary sacred heart, there's even a pyramid on there. On what grounds have you been denied access? Well, understandably, they're concerned about things like health and safety and their responsibilities for the site. But we do feel, in a way, they would prefer us to go away and that they could quietly develop the site. Although they have, in fairness to them, they've made some commitment in their planning guidelines for the site, provisional guidelines. They've indicated that the graveyard area needs to be treated sensitively. We would, however, strongly like that a clear statement is made of commitment to protect the site as a heritage site, as ultimately, we believe, a world heritage site and and a, a real community resource. Well, talking of community resources, it it strikes me immediately as you began to describe Ingrid that Dulwich and the area we're in now, sort of Borough London Bridge, could hardly be more different from one another, could they? What sort of challenges have you found in terms of creating a sense of community in that area? Well, there's a difference between physical communities and online communities. And and, um, the other idea that... um some friends of mine and myself had a few years ago was to create a blog, a local community blog, and invite just everybody to write what it, pretty much whatever they felt like on the blog, as long as it's celebratory. We didn't want anything negative. And we called it Dulwich on View. And that has worked incredibly well, in fact. And people have met, as they you know, sometimes do, but um, on online... And not just younger people, it seemed to appeal to a lot of older people, silver surfers, who wrote about their memories of what Dulwich was like um, in the 50s and and so forth. And then um, other people respond to the comments and all these wonderful online conversations that are happening on the blog. There's been a huge conversation recently about prefabs and people's memories of living in prefabs and people still living in prefabs now and saying how wonderful they are and the gods, all this stuff. And so a couple of years ago, I thought, well people are meeting online let's um, organize a party so that they can meet physically and because part of the purpose of this blog was to introduce people to the aforementioned Dulwich Picture Gallery um, I organized a, a tea party in Dulwich Picture Gallery Gardens and invited um, lots of bands that had had articles about themselves or written up about themselves and so forth and people that made cakes locally and they all came along and a wine um, importer brought his wine and we um, and we had a fantastic tea party where people met they'd only met online before they met in the grounds of Dulwich Picture Gallery and they discovered Dulwich Picture Gallery in the process so this huge range of people um, that had just really they live fairly local locally to each other but they have been communicating online we're now meeting physically and it went really well <laughs> well this is always a challenge of course in london isn't it is to get people talking to their next door neighbor if you uh, care to make such an introduction it seems to me though at first glance i wasn't sure whether there was a huge amount in common between your two projects but what i see in both cases is there's a cause at the center of each one and there's the, the quite obvious direct approach to promoting that cause but then there's also something uh, a, a bit more soft marketing going on and i know john for example you do tours that touch on the Crossbones Graveyard, but also take us further afield in this area. That's right. I'm, I'm doing a series of tours coming up in, uh, in the week leading up to Halloween. I'll be doing some Halloween ghost walks and other walks. Very much what I'm trying to do, I'm interested in the, the, the really the back streets of history. And uh, in the sense we're standing in Red Cross Way, a back street parallel with Borough High Street, 
Many people who've lived here for years have never been down here and seen the wonders of this street. Why, why do you think that is? Are people just not curious I enough? Think people, it's, it's partly even fear. You know, there was a time when this was genuinely a street too dangerous to walk down, but that was about 150 years ago when it was part of the Mint, the most notorious part of London, you know, Matt of the Mint in the, the Beggar's Opera. But oh, that, Can we linger on that a second? I've not heard of that before. Oh, yeah, there's a character called Matt of the Mint in John Gay's The Beggar's Opera, and just his name, the Matt of the Mint... The mint was took its name from an old royal mint in this area, but already by Georgian times it was a notorious thieves' district. And when Booth did his survey of London poverty, sending researchers to walk the beat with local policemen, the policeman told the researcher here, we never go down there, and certainly never singly. So it was a very dangerous place. It was also a place with incredibly high infant mortality, for example. Diseases like cholera were endemic. More than half the burials, the 15,000 estimated burials at crossbones are of children. So, I mean, there's a real indication of, of just how poor this area was. Could I just say, while we're on the subject of online, I mean, a lot of the information can be found also on our website. It's fantastic now that we have websites. We don't have to say all this. And the crossbones.org.uk website has information about the walks I'm doing coming up, but also about our vigils. As I say, we're on to the 101st... And, uh, and all that information is available on the Crossbones website. We will, of course, give details, remind you of those at the end of the show, as we always do. We are in the very privileged position of being able to have John show us some of the places that he tends to visit in the area. I, su- I suppose we should start making a move, but not before we uh, perhaps touch on one or two of the news stories of the week. And staying perhaps for a moment with that community's idea, there's an initiative which, on the face of it, seems like uh, an altogether new thing to do with pooling the resources of an area but I I gather Ingrid this isn't as new as it might seem. I think you're talking about Street Bank. Yeah no we have an equivalent of Street Bank in in Dulwich or um, just very close to Dulwich called Time Bank and it's... We we should should probably say what Street Bank is before we... All right okay okay well um, you better say what Street Bank is. It is a a arrangement whereby basically you can put stuff that you don't want or maybe stuff that you think somebody else could get better use from into a pooled resource. It's all done online, of course. So, for example, let's say you have done with your toolkit. You plan to do no more DIY in your lifetime. You wish to uh, enable somebody else to do theirs. So you bequeath your toolkit to Street Bank and somebody who's in the process of putting up a set of shelves can go and claim your toolkit. Uh, <laughs> that sounds flippant, but there's some case studies here. Uh, for example, one person, uh, Karen Johnson, says, I use Street Bank extensively. I was looking for some Lego for my four-year-old and did a call out to my area. A neighbour I didn't know got in touch and ended up giving me three huge bucketfuls. We had so much, we ended up passing on half of it to my son's school. I love that, she says. Spreading things around your community to where it's going to be best used. This sounds like a great idea. Yeah, well, we have the equivalent in Dulwich, in the Dulwich area which is called Time Bank. And so it's not about physical objects, but it's about time. You give your time because you have a certain skill. Um, and maybe, you know, you know a language and therefore can teach. And so you offer a certain number of hours teaching. Or you might have a bit of legal background, so you could give legal advice to somebody. And then if you need something, like you need legal advice, you go to the Time Bank. And it is a bank, so you can bank up um, hours and then wait until there's a time when you perhaps need someone else's skills. You need someone to help you with your garden or something like that. So, yeah, we, ha- we have a very similar thing in Dulwich. And what do you think is the, uh, the value of these 
things, really. You're grimacing horridly. There's nuance to these things. But perhaps there are some drawbacks to uh, schemes like this. I don't know. Well, I'm just, I don't know much about it because I've only recently become involved, but I'm slightly worried that it might be a little bit um, dividing of society in that the people that need to give their time and to take time from others just might all... I can't say. Well, I, I, I think you're, you're being very, uh, very delicate and very, uh, very careful not to offend. But it's uh, well. Look, l- let me uh, let me see. Let me float an idea and see what you think of it. It is not the risk that it could sort of stratify people uh, in terms of the needy and the not needy. A bit like the old school lunches. Have you got a voucher for your dinner, or have you not got a voucher for your dinner? Or are, are you part of a food bank, or are you not part of a food bank? And this sort of thing, this collectivism, perhaps runs the risk of uh, it's maybe being a bit of a sop in times of need. All the people involved in this scheme are off in one corner, and people who don't need to be part of it are off having a holiday in the Algarve. Well, you put it very well. <laughs> I, I'm thinking exactly along those lines. And if you look at the website, I mean, it's wonderful, and it does get people together. And I've noticed that um, their calendar, for example, has teas and things where they can meet and so forth. Um, but they're not. It's not mixing of society. It is, as you say, stratifying it. I think, and that's what bothers me. It's better to have it than not. And um, I think it's a brilliant idea. Well, what do you think of schemes like this, John? I, I, t- I tend to agree. I think certainly the danger is that it, it, it can become a sort of sop to people's conscience. On the other hand, it, it's, good, it, it's certainly better than, than you know, people completely ignoring these needs. I think, though, it might be part of a larger tendency. I think a very large tendency, which goes all the way to challenging the whole political and economic system that we're living in, and to challenging particularly a system that's so predicated on how much you earn and your ability to spend money uh, and the and constant growth and actually I think there's a, a real groundswell now of people who are looking to challenge that perhaps not in the traditional ways of communism and socialism but to look for alternative models and certainly I mean you know one of the things again at the vigils that we find is people from all walks of life come yes we do have sex workers but we also have office workers we you know the haves and the have nots well isn't this one of the problems actually is that the arguments of organisations like Occupy, for example, who have, of course, featured in the news in the last week, uh, once again with a resurgence there, we'll come to that in a second, but they are identifying, in fact, a majority of society as being outcast by the the 1%. Now, whether you hold with that idea or not, is there not a tendency, particularly since times have got tougher, there's there's a perception that those with are pulling up the ladder behind themselves and leaving those who are without in Stuck. And I wonder whether the, uh, the sort of the sympathies for a scheme like this are likely to come from precisely those people who understand that need because they themselves are needy. I, I wonder what could be done really to incentivise or encourage people who have got stuff, have got resources to spread it about a bit. I think that's. I think it's really important. I think you know one of the things certainly I'm trying to do in a small way and many others is to persuade the haves and especially the very wealthy that now is the time to act to demonstrate seriously uh, one's commitment to the society so that others can see and that this was because ultimately I do believe in a some sort of um, uh, principled form of capitalism is probably the 
the, the best of a bad job we've got. But the, very, the danger is if people keep on pulling up the ladders and really becoming more and more wealthy as the people at the bottom are becoming poorer and poorer, we are, you know, it's not inconceivable that we will end up with, in 30 years' time, living in a Stalinist state because it's the only state that would be able to lock up the bankers and the very rich. I would prefer that not to happen, but I think it does need some action. Yes, and everyone can say that sort of thing, and action, 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 but what should the action be? And in my very small way, I think, um, mixing up people as much as possible, which just looking at, you know, when you ask me, what do you do, what are you interested in? And I found all these diverse things I was interested in. And I, tried, I was looking at a common thread as to what I'm interested in. And it is, it is mixing people up. It is the whole, you know, trying to mix up people interested in street art and classical art, trying to make people meet online, which is a, a leveller, really, online, because pretty much everyone has access to the computer and they can, you know, and that's a leveller, so get them mixing up as well. So, really, on a, on a very simple level, the more people meet, the more they can sympathise with each other and maybe actually do something on a small level about it. Well, that sounds like a pretty sound approach. It's certainly been shown to work with other sort of discriminatory areas of like, you know, racism or homophobia or things like that. And you see that the other lot aren't so bad after all, really. Mm. There is an alternative approach to protests being offered by the Occupy movement who have reappeared. They have, haven't they? They've uh, Four women um, chained themselves to the altar. Uh, at, at St Paul's Cathedral. At it St Paul's be Cathedral, that's right, where, where of course the Occupy, uh, the original Occupy event, really took place. Well, I've got very mixed feelings. I actually went to the very first day of Occupy. I was I was willing to have a go at occupying um, the city with them, uh, and of course we we were unable. We were blocked by the police from being able to get into um, the stock exchange, which it was the, the the target. And then people, I stayed that night and I left quite late. By which time it was clear that the church was going to offer um, a form of sanctuary. Uh, After that, we saw how the Occupy movement became very diffused. They had to deal with the endemic homelessness and drug and alcohol problems. They effectively became the street centre for all this, and it made it very difficult. So I've got my sympathy for them. At the same time, I think they went for the soft target. Yes, the church can certainly be criticised for having become very establishment, and certainly Jesus might well have been turning out the moneylenders out of the temple. But I think it is an easy, soft target for people who know they're not going to be able to actually get at the stock exchange. The police will keep them out. The church, on some level, offered a form of sanctuary and have really probably regretted it ever since. So it's rather easy... Uh, and, and I do think of political protesters in, in other countries where people are locked up and even tortured, and that is true heroism. And I think well, some well, elements well, before, of Well, our... actually, Pussy Riot is a perfect example at the moment because they themselves burst into a church to complain about the status quo politically. Indeed they did, and, and the same argument can certainly be made about the, the way the church has, is rather too comfortable with big business. But uh, what Ingrid was saying earlier as well, I, I also agree with, I think the danger of the Occupy movement, even with the we are the 99%, you are the evil 1%. Again, it divides people and it can demonise people and generalise and I think that, you know, that's not a way forward really. We need to engage people get them talking to each other and the church actually can play a role in that I think, still. I think they were just repeating a point, weren't they? And they didn't stay there very long, as far as I know, and they cut themselves out of the... <laughs> and yes, it was hardly the suffragettes. <laughs> no, exactly. And it was just an anniversary reminder, I suppose. A necessary one, do you think? Nothing wrong with it. 
I think it's just a very passing phase. And, you know, people look at it in newspapers, look at them, say great or not great, and that's it. So it's, it's a way of asserting a brand more than uh, really making a serious protest, do you think? Yes, probably, probably. I mean, there's so much... You, you seem distinctly underwhelmed. Yeah, I am underwhelmed. There's so much interesting stuff going on in London, uh, as you know, I know by <laughs> studying the Londonist recently. And it's, it's one of the funny little quirky things that have happened. I'm, I'm really denigrating it now by saying it's a funny little quirky thing. Um, it's only, I suppose, the image I have in, in my head of, of them chaining themselves to a pulpit, which is really quite bizarre in many ways and of course it has a much deeper meaning and, and point to it but there's a lot else going on out there as well Well let's talk about some of that and I think a good place to start might be, uh, I'm looking at a picture of poppies held in the hands of John Constable, what's all this about? Oh, this just caught my eye in the Londonist um, that, uh, as well as um, they're, they're wrapping a circle train, an overground train and some buses with poppy livery and there's also going to be a, announcements to recognise the, the contribution of servicemen and women so basically Poppy Day is going underground as well, uh, London Underground and Transport for London are, are supporting this, uh, this project. It's interesting, the whole thing obviously Poppy Day is another potentially controversial topic um many people who are pacifists object to it uh, i think in a principled way i've always been very anti-war but i've always felt that it's good to honor soldiers and, and make a distinction between the politicians who send them into wars and the soldiers who actually do the fighting uh that's my personal position and i respect anyone's position with that what i think is interesting though is this idea of remembrance the importance of remembrance in a way remembrance sunday is seen as quite an establishment thing the queen and all the ministers and the top brass are there but remembrance is something important for everyone and um, it's not a simple sort of passive or a token thing I think at its best it's a very active thing by remembering the the people who've lived before us we actually connect ourselves with where we've come from and where we're going it's a very active process it's very much what the whole thing here at the gates of crossbones is about uh, remembering those who were forgotten Uh, so it's very active and as I say, very encouraged to see Transport for London supporting this initiative and we very much hope, of course, that they'll support this very crucial initiative to remember the poor of London. I should hate that we should forget the crossbones aspect of this. I know, I know. I go, I'm banging on about it. It is at the heart of my Southwark, but I'm happy to take you for a walk if you wish to go elsewhere in Southwark. We, we will indeed be taking you up on, on that offer. Um, Ingrid, what are you making of the Remembrance Day ideas? And I want to ask particularly, I gather that David Cameron has decided that he's going to, uh, well, commemorate, celebrate, acknowledge the beginning as well as the end of the First World War. I believe there are plans to mark I think a minute silent or shops closing at the commemoration of specific battles as we go 100 years past each one of them. There's a bit of that kind of jingoism thing that got us into so much trouble 100 years ago going on here, isn't there? Is, is this not a government trying to go, hey, look, we're all in this together and uh, let's salute the heroes and forget about the financial trouble? Is there not something rather cynical going on with the government's approach here? I think there is a danger of looking into the past too much. You, you learn from the past um, to help you... Um, decide on your future but you need to make quite sure that the poppies and so forth aren't just um, all about um, I don't know, creating events and, and so forth, we have to learn from all this and I wonder whether remembering each battle is useful at all there's just the overall idea of learning from the past and not going there in the future 
which could be done equally through uh, a museum or something like that, the idea of everybody participating in this. Well, I wonder whether they've picked up something from the Olympics. They've, they've got this idea and they've decided that what we need is another event. What can we do? Possibly. I mean, the Olympics, in my view, anyway, was a huge success and it brought together people from all over the country and everyone had a unified love of what was going on and, our su- and it was very successful and it was just wonderful going along to the Olympic Park and um, feeling at one with all these different people pouring in. Let's build on that. How, how would you r- respond to an idea like that that perhaps looking, looking back might be a less than healthy thing? Oh, I think it can be. Uh, certainly nostalgia and sentimental views of the past I don't think are very healthy. Uh, and I agree, you know, that certainly uh, some of our imperial past can be just wheeled out again in, in a way uh, and, and used to sort of create a false sense of unity. Um, I still believe you know, I very much that we need to look back but in order to see ourselves as part of a dynamic whole. The the danger of only looking forward is we end up with totally soulless uh, constructions. We're seeing all around this area buildings going up. There's nothing wrong with this area changing. It's always changed. But without being informed by what this area is, we'll end up with a, a sort of interchangeable city, which could be somewhere, you know, Dubai or um, Los Angeles. Well, that's a very good point, yes. Re- really recognising what's already in the area and what the, the heritage of the place is. Uh, I know we've got a story on Londonist this week about an extension to one of the largest structures on the north bank of the Thames. It's going to rival the Shard, under whose sh- shadow we practically stand at the moment, apparently. Now, did you realise this was a possibility? A cash injection has happened uh, for a, a building project, and so they've been able to whack another six storeys onto it. I didn't know that was a thing you could do. <laughs> Are we allowed to talk about penis extension? <laughs> in, arch- in a purely architectural terms. Have but you, that's have you received is. a cash injection? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably best we take the phallic side of architecture. <laughs> no, but there, maybe that is exactly what's going on, though. It, it, it's, it's just what came to my mind, to be honest, when, when I hear that, you know, that money is being spent on another six stories. I think the biggest, you know, it was um, Renzo who, met, who designed the Shard. He spoke of vertical cities, which sounds incredibly exciting and thrusting and you know nothing wrong but I do worry a bit you know this whole neighborhood the streets grew up communities grow up very naturally you can't have an architect design a community and if everyone's living in a vertical city do they ever come out again you know or do they spend their whole lives there well taking it to its logical conclusion if you have another cash injection and another cash injection you just carry on going up and up and up <laughs> but some of them are very beautiful and I do love the shard I have to say I know, I know I'm in the minority here but it I think it is stunningly beautiful and you can see it from Dulwich, my God. You know, you can see it from all over the place. <laughs> like, that's a real sense of localism, is it? You can see it from Dulwich. You can see it from miles away. <laughs> from Hampstead, too, actually. You see it from Hampstead, although it now dwarfs St Paul's, which some people wouldn't like. It actually looks very beautiful from Hampstead. Um, from, from the South London, it is showing its, its sort of ragged bum, really. To, to, but the, the city has always done that to South London, so that, that's perhaps very good that it should continue to do so. We know where we, we know our place, then. <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> uh, so here's the big story. The constant. This is all about communities and how they've grown up and, and evolved naturally. Do we have any interest whatsoever in the boundary changes in London proposed by the Tory Party? No, not much. 
let's move on. <laughs> I wanted to let you know, actually, we've um, we've been in touch with the Wrap Up London Brigade, Elizabeth at Wrap Up London. Now, we mentioned those two weeks ago. Wrap Up London is a scheme designed, and in fact this ties in with the stories earlier, designed to make sure that people have got coats in winter. I'm thinking particularly of people who've got no cash or no home. And there is a collection of overcoats going on. Now, we couldn't quite understand it because alongside that there also seemed to be something about oyster cards being given out. I have spoken to Elizabeth Greer, the uh, founder of Hands On London. What they're handing out is oyster card holders. And uh, that, that explains rather a lot. Why are they doing that? I don't know if there was a typo there to promote the idea of um, got an ad handing out your overcoat. Yes, there's, there's a leaflet, I think, in the, uh, in the holder and all that stuff. It's a, it's a marketing uh, idea for this very worthy campaign. The 5th to the 9th of November, Hands on London is calling on Londoners to rummage through their wardrobes and donate their gently used winter cover-ups at convenient locations across the capital. I strongly urge you to Google handsonlondon.org uk and find out more about that you can donate your coat you could also volunteer to work in the the sorting of the overcoats and you can hand out coats uh, ingrid is pointing at herself i don't know whether that means she's volunteered <laughs> to do that or no but um i have a um an, a story pretty similar there's a wonderful charity called streetwise opera and um it helps homeless people through um teaching them opera really and giving performances and things and in the end them having learnt commitment and so forth, um, they have to go out and look for jobs. And Streetwise Opera um, was asking people to provide suits because homeless people don't often have suits in order to go for job interviews and so forth. And so my husband did exactly that. He rummaged through his, uh, his cupboard and we've just given a whole load of, of suits. But um, what's quite funny is that they're quite old and they were three-piece suits. So I'm not sure how... So they probably they probably won't get the job on the basis of a really out of fashion suit. But no, it's the same idea. It's asking people to um, reuse their clothes and to to yeah given for a good purpose now this is important okay when it comes to community don't forget you've noticed it's been getting cold the last few days and you've probably been uh, putting an extra bar on the fire or turning up the central heating Uh, it's cold outside there are people outside living in that they need your overcoat they need your assistance and uh, getting a job of course is part of that that's very true and and i think the more we we can redistribute what we don't need uh, recycle it the better uh, in, in a lot of continental countries for example in Germany they have a thing called uh, Spermu, uh, where, where they everybody just puts out their rubbish on certain days on the street the whole streets are just full of these little patches in Amsterdam they do it as well I think that's, this is really inc- and then people just come and take what they need mm. so these kind of ways these different initiatives for redistributing because certainly you're right I mean for people who are sleeping rough in a cold winter um, really clothes clothing is one of the keys that and and a source to hot drinks and soup soup kitchens we're going to see we need to see more of these in this current uh, situation really yes do do your bit and uh, we're on a roll here so let's go for thames 21 as well who need volunteers to help clean up the thames a lot of this stuff can be really good fun uh, the idea here is uh, that this organization thames 21 who we've featured on the show in the past have four dates in uh, october they've got many more coming up in uh, coming months as well though and the plan is to get down into areas of the river that have got uh, plastic bags wrapping themselves around the heads of swans and uh, horrible knots 
got weed that's covering everything over and uh, choking all the natural plant life and uh, things stopping boats from running and all, all that sort of stuff and just to clean them up and make them work and make our waterways uh, uh, something to be proud of as in fact i think they already are if you look back 60 70 years my goodness you wouldn't want to fall in in there if you're interested, just go to Thames 21 online. You'll find out upcoming dates that you can get involved with. No need to book or anything like that. Just turn up and help out and clean up our city. We're off on a tour with John Constable in just a moment. Before we go, our sponsors this week, as last, is doingsomething.co.uk. And this could hardly be a more appropriate organisation, really. These guys are all about finding fun things to do in London with someone on the site who you want to do it with. And, of course, you could be doing any of the things we've talked about here. Why not go down and volunteer with Hands on London and sort some overcoats and meet some new people and go out for a drink afterwards or something? Why not come down to one of the vigils at the Crossbow graveyard or look at some street art in Dulwich basically what you need to do to start the ball rolling is go to www.doingsomething.co.uk forward slash Londonist sign up and then you'll be able to see other people's profiles find out what kind of things they're into and uh, swap details meet up and have a good time in London that's doingsomething.co.uk forward slash Londonist Okay, well, we're going to depart the Crossbones graveyard now, and we are going to be heading northwards. And um, what's our first stop, John? Well, we're we're heading northwards up into the the old Liberty of the Clink. This was this area you mentioned earlier, an area outside the law of the city, where for centuries all the things that were forbidden in the city, bear baiting, taverns, prostitution we've discussed, but also theatre, were actively discouraged or even forbidden in the city but encouraged and legalized and licensed over here in the liberty of the clink so shall we take a walk into the liberty? let's go well we're on the move now to our next destination and uh, well ingrid i've got to say that somebody from dulwich now I'm, I'm tapping straight into the regional stereotypes in london here but somebody from dulwich isn't the first person i would imagine would be into street art not least because you've got so little of it up until recently we only really had one piece by a guy called remy ruff maybe it was just the fact that i work with old masters so much i just like all forms of art and i just wanted a counterpoint to that and i did start to get interested in what was going on in the streets and um Almost by luck, really, I came across a rather well-known, as it turned out, street artist called Stick. I didn't think I knew that at the time. S-T-I-K. He's the fellow who does all the stick figures, isn't he? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, mainly over the East End and so forth. And so he's very eye-catching, his stuff. And we fell into conversation, and I just found him a thoughtful, intelligent, interesting guy... And we started to talk about art in general, and I took him to Dulwich Picture Gallery. So I started to show him works of art, um, the, the antithesis, really, of what he does. But actually, it's not the antithesis of what he does. The classical art that I look at is all about human values, and his work on the streets is also about human values. He just pairs down the rather elaborate pictures that were painted um, in the 17th century to nothing but the human side so he takes away the posh costumes and the background and um, all the sort of the links to social ideas and wealth and so forth and status in paintings that I have been dealing with and all you see on the walls are human relationships um, human emotions and so forth and I just felt there's a huge link here between the past and the present and the past values and present values Mm. so we wandered around Dulwich together and um, 
we had this idea that he could recreate some paintings in Dulwich Picture Gallery in his own style on the walls of Dulwich. So I got him six walls in Dulwich. It's not what, that easy. Now, what, yes, what do you mean when you say you got him some walls? <laughs> well, uh, he just said that would make a suitable wall and I would go in and to the landlord or find out who the landlord was and I said, can stick my friend here paint something and this is the sort of thing he had in mind and they'd say yes. It was, wasn't that difficult. I'm really surprised actually because I sort of imagine that people would be resistant to that sort of stuff. Not least we've had in the last week one of the graffiti artists who was involved with the Olympic opening ceremony has been jailed for uh, I think 16 months for his uh, for, for criminal damage as they put it because that, that, that is the tough side of street art isn't it? Is that the, it, How do you differentiate really between uh, what is or isn't art and, and what is or isn't vandalism? Well, that's right. But, I mean, you look around um, the streets and there is stunning art, absolutely stunning art out there. And basically, Stick and I got permission to paint. Um, Although I think Stick has done in the past, and maybe is still doing it now, I don't know, some illegal pieces. Um, All the Dulwich stuff was legal because I wanted it to stay there. I really appreciate what he does and how terribly clever and insightful his stuff is. He adapted his palette to Dulwich as well, so it's not massively um, fluorescent colours. He's muted um, his figures and the backgrounds down hugely so it really fits the environment the easiest I think was probably the wall of my house <laughs> well I'm glad to see you you're putting your uh, your walls where your mouth is <laughs> definitely it looks great it looks lovely and my friend down the road <laughs> so we both have sticks on our walls and stick recently had a sellout solo show where I mean I, I believe this because I was there um, the, it opened at 6.30 on a Thursday evening. At 7 o'clock in the morning that Thursday, queues were forming to get into the show to buy his work. And literally the whole lot was bought in five minutes. And, well, I mean, I'm sure the gallery did a lot of publicity, but the fact that his stuff is all over the streets in East London, and he's really well known for that reason, makes his work so, so popular. What's Stick like as an individual? He's absolutely lovely. We got on incredibly well. And um, we're different generations and different backgrounds and so forth. But um, on, on many levels, we just, we just completely understand what's, what's happening. We have the same view uh, or desire to introduce, for example, people who are really interested in classical art. I would love them to understand um, the value of street art and he says he has a whole load of followers who wouldn't dream of going anywhere near Dulwich Picture Gallery. Um, they just have a huge prejudice against that type of art. And so, in a way, we had this um, mission to bridge that gap and to introduce um, or break down the prejudices and introduce different types of people to each other. Really. I know you've been in education and in educative roles throughout your working life and you've done work in prisons and you've done work in other uh, challenging environments, I think it's fair to say. Do you see this as an extension of that or is this a hobby, is it something entirely separate? Am I trying to educate? No, I'm trying to enlighten them, I think. You know, it's up to them if they're interested in the end, but I just quite like people to um, get huge pleasure from walking down the streets and smiling at street art and not thinking, oh, this is a load of rubbish that, you know, young offenders perhaps spray on walls and run away. Because it's not like that. And if if people look at street art or a lot of street art carefully, they'll see the huge skill involved. And vice versa, if you... um, Oh, I can't bear to go to an old-fashioned gallery like Dulwich Picture Gallery. Well, um, 
I can talk to people about a Rubens or a Rembrandt, and whereas they might walk straight past them, if we talk about it really, really carefully in front of the picture, they will see value. They will see um, universal themes. They will see things in those paintings that really resonate with them nowadays. So there's an element of this which is about getting people to stop and take the time. Yes, yes, and to give the time, just not to break down prejudices. I heard a wonderful quotation from somebody, I forget who, who said that one of the biggest myths with buying a book is that you're also somehow buying the time to read it. Well, exactly, and you're also buying the cover to a certain extent, or you're attracted by the cover, aren't you? And this is the same with art. You can walk straight past it or something can draw you in, but you have to also give the time. We have processed past one or two recognisable streets, one or two completely unrecognisable streets, and a blank wall where no Banksy is. <laughs> and uh, we have marvelled at the, the horror, in John's view, of the corporate street out there. We are in view now of both the Golden Hind just behind us, and uh, we've got half a building, not even half a building, that's being generous. What, what, have, you, uh, what have you brought us to here? It's the ruins of uh, Winchester Palace, uh, which was the London home of the Bishop of Winchester, he who licensed the Winchester geese, those those prostitutes. He did it under a, 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 an ordinance that dates back to 1161 AD, the ordinance to protect um, the stews, to regulate the stews of Southwark. And they, it included all these different rules of how the brothel keepers and the prostitutes and the innocent passers-by and the punters all had to behave and there were fines to pay if they didn't. And one fascinating thing is the signature on these ordinances. The man who signed them was Thomas Beckett, who was later to become Saint Thomas a Beckett. Now, this idea of licensing prostitutes is quite unusual to a contemporary ear, isn't it? This isn't something that we would have much truck with today. And to find that the, the church was doing that rather than the state is quite surprising. It is. Um, well, of course, Amsterdam has, and other European cities have, have experimented with... And there is a campaign still to legalise prostitution driven a lot by sex workers who, who feel they'd be much better protected in such a situation. But yes, it's unusual for the church. I think one thing to understand uh, the, the, although Shakespeare himself um, calls him a Winchester goose, the Bishop of Winchester, thou that gives whores indulgences to sin. So Shakespeare took a dim view of at least some of those bishops. But in fairness the church inherited an area that was already very lawless and sought to impose some sort of order. So the idea of a liberty was not that anything goes but that you have different rules for a palace this of course is quite a modest affair well, this is the, the remains of the Great Hall, which was part of a much bigger priory of St Mary Overy. The dock nearby here is called St Mary Overy Dock, and in fact it was the original name for the cathedral um, before the Reformation. So, um, yes, it's, the whole of St Mary Overy Priory covered this whole area, including where the cathedral now is, and running up to London Bridge. So this was just the Great Hall, uh, where the bishop, uh, for example... Um, Cardinal Beaufort um, married his um, daughter to the King of Scotland and the, the feast was held here. So it was considered quite grand in medieval times. Still got that lovely rose window as well. Yes, it's amazing that that's survived, hasn't it? Very beautiful uh, end wall that we've got there. What do you make of this, Ingrid? I think it's rather a strange area in that um, 
there's nothing much there apart from the wall that you have suggested and there seems to be moss on the ground and and it's just completely railed off which I'm wondering why because the wall is fantastic and needs to remain but is this just to give a sense of the proportion of the hall or something? Originally down here because there's a pit below us that you're describing Ingrid and originally you can see the remains of it there was a huge stone cross which had stood in the foundations. And it's sadly been covered with sand and, and moss has grown on it. I don't know why they did that, presumably to try and protect it. A lot of what is called heritage often strikes me as being rather theme-parking history. And indeed, you mentioned um, the Golden Hind just over there, which is a lovely boat, a working replica of, of Drake's boat, lovely for kids. Uh, and, and so I wouldn't criticise it, except in the sense of people start to believe that is something to do with the history of this place. We are on something of a whistle-stop reduced version of one of John's tours here. Uh, of course, there's far more time to do more. We've got one more stop-off. Where are we going to next? Uh, let's head over to the Tabard, where uh, Chaucer and his pilgrims set off on their pilgrimage to Canterbury to visit the tomb of Thomas Beckett. Well, as so often happens on this show, uh, a couple of people I only met this morning have taken me down an alleyway, <laughs> and, uh, and we are standing uh, around... The, well, it's, it's a fairly nondescript sort of area, to be honest. This isn't the sort of place that uh, I usually come. I'll have you know. <laughs> well, so, as I say, it's often down these unprepossessing little alleyways that history lurks, ready to come out and bite us. So we're here in Talbot uh, Yard, but that's a corruption of Tabard, because this was the site of the Tabard Inn, where um, Geoffrey Chaucer and his pilgrims meet before setting off for Canterbury in, in Southwark at the Tabard as I lay, ready to wenden on my pilgrimage, says Chaucer. And the reason they would meet in this and other coaching inns along Borough High Street was because in those days London Bridge was the only bridge over the river. And so uh, pilgrims would come over the bridge, put up in the, one of the coaching inns all along this street, and then set off in the morning, either for the continent or, in this case, for Canterbury. And it was a great pilgrimage of course made for lots of reasons not least people seeking miraculous cures and they were going to a shrine that was supposed to have these miraculous powers and that was the shrine of saint thomas beckett the uh, man who had signed the uh, ordinance legalizing prostitution in this area but who also later was murdered in his own cathedral as archbishop of canterbury for how long? Oh, so many questions. How, for how long was prostitution uh, legal and licensed in that way? Just over five hundred years. It, 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 I mean, it was, the ordinances were signed in eleven sixty one A.D., and I so, suppose there were times Henry VIII briefly rescinded. Um, th- th- that so you, one could say it ended in Henry VIII's time, but really it came back again, and it was only with Cromwell, uh, the 1640s. So roughly just over 500 years, or just uh, under 500. Right, and the rise of Puritans, and uh, yeah, they wouldn't be for, for that sort of thing, would they? Close the lot theatre as well, of course, which was considered as only one step above the world's oldest profession. The second oldest was acting. <laughs> And we should disentangle fact from fiction as well. Uh, You mentioned that Chaucer himself came on pilgrimages, and of course he wrote about uh, pilgrims heading down to Canterbury. Can we just disentangle this? We can, although, I mean, we we don't know that Chaucer made the pilgrimage, but many people have suggested he did. Certainly, Chaucer, many of those characters were representative types, but they may well have been based on actual people. We know that the landlord of the Tabard is Harry Bailey. That is a real historical character. He was actually the... uh, MP as well for this area and he's the man of course in, in the Canterbury Tales who said 
suggests uh, that the pilgrims should tell each other stories on the way and the best story gets a free meal on the house. So in a way, Chaucer is conflating uh, his fiction with real characters and events. You seem pretty certain that this really was the precise site. I think we, we are certain. It's the back entrance to Guy's Hospital. In fact, just over there is the mortuary. Uh, so, uh, but again, it's quite appropriate, you know, that the pilgrimage was very much about healing and uh, the hospitals of Guy's and formerly, of course, St Thomas's was also here in the London Bridge area. Right, so we've got the people having a few drinks in here. They look out, they see the mortuary, they think, what we need to do is, en masse, get as far away from that as possible. (laughs) Yes, I think I see the motivation there. Thank you for taking us uh, on this tour. We will come to you in just a second, John Constable, for details of how people can go on extended and more in-depth versions of that and other tours. I can't think of a a more likely candidate than John Constable for our historical quiz. I I haven't yet gauged how Ingrid Beasley is going to fare. I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, She's hiding in her scarf now. This is not... Okay, we've got five questions. This is, this is this week in London, in history. Five questions. For the first question, this is a really tough one, actually. This is probably the toughest question we've had on this quiz, I, I would say. Monday, the 15th of October, 1881. A theatre opened in the West End, but which theatre was it? And the clue I can give you is it's currently called the Harold Pinter Theatre, but what was it called when it was opened in 1881? I would take a, a machine gun approach to this if I were you. I'm going to take a wild shot at, 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 that it was also called The Globe, another globe. Not Oh, no, no, not The Globe, no. Goodness, but it's, it was past the Drury Lane and although it's much later than that. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so, I, d- I don't know, Apollo? Mm, no. <laughs> Think of a type of performance, a type of theatre. Criterion? No. No. Is that a type of... Theater. No, I don't know. That is a theatre. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember the Pross Arch uh, as a West End theatre. I think you've stumped us with this. Drama, one. comedy, comedy. Yeah, you've got it. Oh! Ingrid's in. Good. Just just after John gave up hope. See, there's a there's a moral there. Yes, it's the comedy theatre. Uh, Tuesday, the sixteenth of October, nineteen eighty-seven. Simply, what happened? Is that the Marchioness disaster? It's not the Marchioness. You, not, not far away in terms of dates, but uh, no, not that. No. Far, far bigger. National. Strike? Stri- a strike of some sort? No. Uh, it happened in the early hours of the morning. Great intensity. Fire? The hurricane. The hurricane, yes. It was the uh, hurricane that wreaked havoc across London and much of the rest of southern England. Good. One all. What happened? at the Horseshoe Brewery on Tottenham Court Road on Wednesday the 17th of October 1814. A very strange event. And the fact that it's a brewery is of central importance here. Was it some disaster of some sort? After a fashion, yes. Certainly there were eight uh, fatalities, no, fatalities. Um, And it also, also somebody who reputedly, but this is a bit dubious, either died or suffered from alcohol poisoning. So can you guess what happened? Someone drank too much. (laughs) Eight people fell in a a vat. Oh, the vat vat bit's good. I don't think you're going to get it, are you? (laughs) I'm going to give the point to you, John. Uh, You got close. A colossal vat containing three... 1,555 barrels of beer burst. The ensuing tsunami of beer caused several nearby buildings to collapse. Eight fatalities were caused, including a dubious report of alcohol poisoning, as one man supposedly attempted to stem the tide of beer by, yes, drinking it. 
Brilliant. <laughs> a very quick footnote to that. When the, when the Globe Theatre burnt down here on Bankside, uh, there were no fatalities. But one uh, man did catch fire. His britches were on fire. And he was only saved because some provident wit put him out with a bottle of beer. <laughs> That's a great fact. Um, Thursday, so it's 2-1, you've got to catch up in grid. Okay. Thursday, 18th of October, 1922, which company was formed? 1822. Company. It's a company that still exists today. It's no longer called company, though. Now it's called uh, corporation. City of London, I don't know. Not the City of London. 1922. <laughs> Lloyd's. Again, Lloyd's? No, both of those are much older. A building company. Uh, no, nothing to do with... But think about, uh, think about what was becoming... New. What could you do as a company back then in 1922 that you hadn't been able to do before? New technologies. Architecture. Not architecture. What are you talking about? Telecommunications. Now you're thinking, OK, which company started in 1922? Bell. No. It's, no, you're on the right sort of lines, though. The B is, right? British. <laughs> I'm enjoying the pain this is causing. <laughs> they started in Marconi House on the Strand. Uh, some sewage thing, no. no what? <laughs> I'd like to know the thought process that went into that. OK, I'm going to give you the final clue here, and you're, you're going to jump at it, so it's the first one to get it. They started broadcasting from Marconi. BBC. BBC. <laughs> John by a whisker, I think. Oh, share. No. I think we actually I think share that. One each. <laughs> The action, uh, the action replay may uh, prove me wrong on that. Are we sharing it? We're happy to share. Yeah. Or, or we could do the, the nail biting thing. Give it to, give it to you, Ingrid. Okay, to all. <laughs> to all. There we go. No pressure. Friday, the nineteenth of October, two thousand and three. An illusionist completed a feat of endurance. Who was it? What was it? And where was it? Well, the only one I know is Houdini. I'm going to go for David Blaine. Yes, good. In his, per, uh, in his Perspex box, uh, suspended near Tower Bridge. Uh, it was a feat of endurance, not least because he didn't have food or anything, but also because crowds turned up in the old, great old London tradition to pelt him with offal and, uh, and ordure. <laughs> well, I think that was a pretty convincing, uh, <laughs> convincing home straight run there from John Constable, uh, which means, John Constable, Welcome you are this winner. There, I think. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. Ingrid Beasley, a no second place <laughs> oh I've just remembered there's somebody I need to say hello to I think you may be listening in Dublin Jill hello there is time really just to mention projects that are underway at the moment or websites that you would like people to visit to admire your handiwork Ingrid Beasley Okay, well, it would have to be um, the website Dulligeon View, which is really, really interesting if you're in South London. Um, yeah, I'll go for it and see what's going on. And um, if you live there, contribute, you know, send us stuff. What sort of stuff are you after? Cultural, um, if you... Ha- historicals, anything that... Really, I mean, have a look, but your own funny little stories of what life was like at the time or... Uh, now or you know your views on things just anything really that's um, might be of interest to the local community and john constable i've been very confused over whether you hold monthly vigils or not i wonder if you could clarify that please we do we, we hold a vigil on the 23rd of every single month always gathering a bit before seven we start on the stroke of seven so the next one will be october 23rd our halloween vigil and then in the lead up to halloween i'm doing some walks uh ghost walks details of all of this along with the history of the website news films and everything else is on the, our website uh, 
crossbones.org.uk. You can also go to the Southwark Mysteries um, website.co.uk. Um, and between the two of them, you can find out everything we're up to. And please come and get involved. And above all, if you have time, please sign our online petition to persuade uh, the site owners to return this beautiful place to the people of London. Well, there we go. Ingrid Beasley. John Constable, we shall meet again for today. Thank you very much. And Quentin, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, John Constable and Ingrid Beasley. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.